I love the analogy in that video of, of putting the pieces together of our lives like a puzzle as we grow older and as we mature. Uh, that has certainly resonated in my own life as I go along. God's purpose for my life, His calling have progressively become clearer and more interesting and more robust as the years have ticked by. And I think, I think He does that for everyone who's seeking and searching and listening. Everyone who sets their minds on the things of God, as Scripture says. And we'll see evidence of that in our story today as well. As we grow spiritually and emotionally and intellectually, He reveals more of Himself to us and more of His plan for our lives because we're generally, I think, better equipped to manage all of that the more we grow and the more we experience and the more that we learn about God and ourselves because it's not as if God's plan for our lives is changing, okay? The plan has always been there. In fact, long before we were ever created, the plan for our lives, every one of our lives, was already in place. So it's not as if he's adding to or somehow changing what he's planned for us. It's more of a, a discovery process on our part as we progress down this path of life and as we seek him and his will. We constantly discover new elements, uh, new aspects of that will and his design for each of us that have been there all along. And that is incredibly exciting and inspiring when you come to realize that God has this amazing purpose-filled plan already in place for each one of us. And as we pursue His will, as we actively follow Jesus Christ throughout our lives, the plan and those purposes are progressively revealed to us. And so as long as we're still breathing, there's more much more yet to be discovered and realized in our lives because He's put each one of us here for a purpose. And it goes beyond what we can see right in front of us at any given moment. And none of us knows the entirety of God's plan for our lives on this earth until we've lived it out. And it's time to leave here and join those who have gone before us. Uh, Soren Kierkegaard, the 19th century Danish philosopher and theologian, once wrote, Life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. Life is not a problem to be solved, but a reality to be experienced. So, God's plan for each of us that has been in place since before we were born is typically revealed in stages as we grow and mature and become better equipped to accomplish that calling throughout our lives. And again, we'll see evidence of that as we continue to explore the book of Acts today as well. The key for us is to continue seeking and discovering that purpose as it is revealed to us, uh, that specific calling that He's created for each one of us to fulfill. And that is where we share some culpability, some responsibility in the process because God is sovereign over all things. But in His design, He allows us to freely choose to accept or reject that plan, His will. In short, we can choose to spend our lives working for Him or against Him. Knowing that in the end, of course, because He's sovereign, His purposes and His plans will still ultimately be achieved. Okay, God's sovereignty and our free will are not mutually exclusive as some would have us believe. In fact, those two aspects of God's design, sovereignty and free will, I believe coexist quite well together. Which is what theologians refer to as the doctrine of compatibilism, and that's for another day. But for today, we're going to talk about God's great plan in this world where good and evil exist in tension with one another. And over all of that, 
There is a divine conspiracy. God's great plan to thwart the enemy of our souls and reclaim his creation. And in that, we all make choices, whether we realize it or not, that are either in harmony, in agreement with his will, or that work against his will. Okay, we're all either conspiring with God or against him. In fact, there is no space where we can exist in between those two. Right? Jesus said, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Matthew 12, 30. And, and do you understand how incredibly politically incorrect that statement would be if Jesus was here standing today in our culture saying that? Jesus says, you either belong to me, to my kingdom, or you belong to Satan and his kingdom. That isn't a very tolerant statement at all. By today's cultural standards, that's very intolerant. It's closed-minded. It's arrogant by today's standards. I think R.C. Sproul summed it up well when he wrote, So often today our evangelism is too gentle. In order to be politically correct, we invite people to come to Jesus. We ask them if they would like to receive Jesus and tell them uh, they will be glad if they do. For believing in Him will enrich their lives, give them meaning, and so on. But God does not invite people to come to Jesus. He commands them to come. We heard Paul say as much. If you were here back in chapter 17 when he was in Athens in verses 30 and 31, he said, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he's fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Okay, so we're all commanded to repent and follow Christ. And refusing to make that choice is in itself a choice to stand against Jesus Christ. As he makes that clear again in in Matthew 12.30 that we just read. And so with that in mind, we as believers should always be evaluating as we journey through this life, what we're doing, right? Is what I'm doing, how I'm living, what I'm working toward, is that serving God's plan or working against it? Who are we conspiring with? Because again, there is no in-between. There's no neutral ground in God's kingdom. We're either working for Him or we're working against Him. And as we talked about a couple of weeks ago with Peter, even those who are following Jesus closely can unknowingly get off track with God's plan and on track with the enemy's plan. Remember, Peter, out of his love and concern for for Jesus, rebuked him when Jesus began explaining God's plan to his disciples about having to suffer and die. And in Matthew 16, 23, Jesus said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, how was Peter who was a disciple of Jesus Christ, he was one of 11 human beings who was closer to Jesus than anyone else on the face of the planet at that time. How was he able to get so far off track to the point that Jesus would rebuke him for colluding with the enemy? It's because Peter didn't understand the plan of God. At that point in his walk with Christ, instead of seeking the will of God, in that moment he was trying to assert his own will onto God, and Jesus points it out to him. He said, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And therein lies the key for each of us. The question that we should be asking ourselves, is my mind set on the things of God or the things of man? 
Because God's plan has and will continue to prevail. And we want to be on the right side of that story, right? And so as we continue our journey with Paul and his friends through the book of Acts in our sermon series, The Acts of the Apostles today, we get a fascinating glimpse into the inner workings of God's divine conspiracy and how each piece of the puzzle fits together to ultimately see God's will accomplished. And, and uh, this part of our story could easily be the script for a really great movie as we see intriguing characters, both good and evil, conspiring against one another. Uh, there are murderers and liars and spies and government agents trying to outsmart each other as God's plan unfolds in Paul's life. So I, w- I wish we had popcorn. This is a very entertaining chapter in our story, and yet more importantly, it is one that we stand to learn much from about keeping our minds set on the things of God and how in that, He uses every part of our lives, the good and the bad, the comfortable and the painful, the easy and the difficult, all of it to reveal and accomplish His plan in us. So let's turn there together where we left off last week, Acts chapter 23, and we'll start at verse 12 in a message entitled Divine Conspiracy. And just to set the stage, Paul has been arrested by the Roman authorities at this point because a riot broke out among the Jews who wanted to kill him. And so the Romans arrest Paul to protect him initially, and also to try and get to the bottom of what is uh, getting the Jews all worked up. And so our story opens up today with Paul being held in the Roman barracks in Jerusalem as a secret plot by some of the Jews to kill him unfolds. Okay, chapter 23, verse 12. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Okay, these were Jewish zealots making a secret plot, their own conspiracy, against Paul to ambush and kill him. And the religious zealots in Paul's day were not unlike our modern day terrorists today. And in the first century, the zealots hated just about everyone who wasn't like them, just like the terrorists today. Uh, They hated the Roman occupation. They hated the Sanhedrin. They hated the scribes and Pharisees because they believed uh, that the Jewish authorities had betrayed them. But they would obviously use those authorities to their advantage if they could, as we see here. And interestingly, at least two of the original 12 disciples of Christ were more than likely among these zealots before they were called by Jesus to follow him. Okay, we, we know, of course, that Simon was a zealot because he's described as such in the beginning of Matthew chapter 10, where the disciples are named. And probably Judas Iscariot as well. All right. The name Judas Iscariot means Judas from the Sicarii. The Sicarii were the assassins, the dagger men that we talked about last week, who were revolting against the Romans in the first century. They would go into large crowds of people and stab them under the cover of these crowds. Those were the Sicarii, and Judas's name numbers him with them. Okay. And what's really interesting about that is Judas agreeing to join Jesus as one of the original twelve quite possibly with the expectation that Jesus was going to lead a revolt against the Romans that he so hated. And then at some point, realizing that wasn't going to happen, may have been the tipping point for Judas to uh, at least try and profit 
from his relationship with Jesus since, since things weren't turning out the way that he thought they would. Okay, but the point is, these 40 plus zealots were so convicted about what they felt they needed to do. They were so passionate and sincere about their cause that they took an oath to neither eat or drink until Paul was dead. It highlights an important point about how we can end up outside of God's will, His will for our lives, without even realizing it. When we begin making life decisions solely based on our feelings. But listen, as powerful as feelings can be, our feelings alone cannot justify our actions. We can have all the passion and conviction and sincerity in the world about our cause, whatever it is. And that still doesn't mean that we're necessarily acting in God's will, according to His plan for us. These Jewish zealots believed in their cause, so much so that they were willing to starve themselves for it. They, they believed that they were right. They believed they were doing the right thing. They believed they were doing what God would have them to do. And they were wrong. Our feelings can betray us. And that applies to believers and unbelievers as well, by the way. I hear people say all the time some version of this statement. That same-sex marriage simply cannot be a sin because a loving God would never disapprove of two people who are genuinely in love being together. Now, no one that I know of is questioning the sincerity of that sentiment. Okay, I believe there are many who passionately hold those convictions very sincerely. But it's based on a feeling rather than the truth of God's scriptures. And that's where we can get into trouble quickly, believing that we're right on track with God's plan for our lives. Because it feels so right when actually we're far from God. I can't tell you how many illicit affairs we've been tangled up with in counseling, trying to help people work through, that all started because of something that felt so right. Okay? The definitive passage of Scripture about God's plan from the beginning of creation for the covenant of marriage. It's spoken of by God in Genesis chapter 2. And then it's confirmed later by Jesus in Matthew chapter 19. We don't even have to get mixed up in Leviticus. Okay, Genesis 2, 18 through 24. Then the Lord God said, Is it not good that the man should be alone? It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. I have a few questions for Adam when I get there about some of, the, some of the names for the animals. But anyway, the man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to the, every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So God didn't use one of the animals to be Adam's helper. He didn't create another man to be Adam's helper. He didn't create multiple people, multiple women to be Adam's helpers. He created one woman to be with one man to become one flesh. 
This is God's design for marriage based on the Word of God, not, not feelings that are contrary to the Word of God. And yet, we have feelings all the time, don't we, that are contrary to the Word of God. And that's proven and discussed throughout Scripture. So it's really to be expected. Right? It's certainly not a surprise. The problem is when we allow those feelings to determine our actions, believing all the while that those actions must be square with God because the feelings are so strong. But listen, our feelings can betray us. They will betray us. In a heartbeat, feelings led Cain to kill Abel. Feelings led Sarah to distrust God's promise, leading to the birth of Ishmael, which, by the way, is the root of the Middle East conflict that we have today. Feelings led Samson to betray his vow to God. Feelings led Saul to disobey God's command in the battle against the Amalekites. And because of it, he pays a heavy price. Feelings led David to commit adultery and murder. Feelings led Peter to deny Jesus. Feelings led Judas to betray Jesus. You get the picture, right? Paul talks a lot about the tension between doing what we feel and doing what is right. In Romans chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, he says, I find it to be a law. And that word law in the ancient Greek is the word namos. It means uh, principle. Okay, so we can read it like this. I find it to be a principle that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, and that's referring to the Mosaic law, in my inner being. But I see in my members another law or principle, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Can you hear the tension in Paul's words? He says, I know what is right, and even when I want to do what's right, I still sometimes do what's wrong because there's conflict within me. And we all have that conflict within us. And so it is crucial, especially when making decisions, that we temper our feelings with understanding, which comes from the Word of God, and then saturate all of that in prayer. And, and the beautiful thing that happens when we do that is God then provides the feelings that not only validate our actions that are based on His Word and His voice in our lives, but those feelings from Him can actually strengthen and revive us. All right, in his letter to the Philippian church in chapter 4, verses 5 through 7, Paul writes, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. In other words, keep your feelings in check. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is a proper application of feelings. We approach God and others with reasonableness, keeping our feelings in check, and then we submit everything that we're thinking and feeling to Him before we act. And then He floods us with feelings that confirm and encourage. Okay? It's not that we won't have feelings in the beginning. We, we always have feelings. And that's okay. God designed us that way. It's how we apply them. So generally speaking, we shouldn't use our feelings alone to justify our actions. Rather, they should validate the actions that we've taken on the back end of things. That, that, those actions that are faithful to God's Word and to His will. And those kinds of actions that come from understanding God's Word and hearing God's voice are going to be at times in tension with how we feel. Okay, you can just count on it. So just a caution then for all of us. The next time you have a really strong feeling about something that you want to, to, to say to someone, for instance, 
You know, I, people will say to me, I cannot wait any longer. I need to go see that person right now and let them know how I feel. Just ask yourself first, is God speaking to me about that? And what does his word say about what's getting ready to happen? Whether it's something you're getting ready to say or something you're getting ready to do, okay? Romans 10, 1 and 2, Paul says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, he's referring to religious Jews, is that they may be saved. Listen, he says, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Okay, they're full of zeal. They're full of feelings. They're full of passion for God, but it wasn't based on a knowledge of the truth. And if we're not careful, we can end up in the same place because it can be really easy to get worked up about something. And because we have such a strong feeling or conviction about that, we assume that we're in the right when actually our actions may be far from God, far from His will, far from His plan. And that's what was happening here with these 40-plus men, these zealots, who were convinced that they need to take Paul out. Okay, Let's keep reading and see what happens next. Verse 16. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than forty of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink, till they've killed him. And now they're ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. And so the plot thickens. And like any great mystery drama... These intriguing characters that we know little about become intertwined with our story. Luke gives us very little information about this mysterious character, Paul's sister's son. Was he a believer? Was he somehow affiliated with the Jewish leaders that he would know of their conspiracy against Paul? Or was he spying on them for information? And, and if so, how did he avoid rousing anybody's suspicions? And how is it that he was so easily able to access the Roman barracks if he was only a youth, as he's described to be? Right? All great questions to which we can only speculate. But what we do know is the Roman commander took the information as a credible threat to Paul's life. And as Paul was a Roman citizen, the tribune was determined that he was going to foil this secret plot against Paul. Okay, let's keep reading. Verse 23. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to His Excellency the Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about 
the questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. Okay, so Lysias, the Roman tribune, is, is definitely not fooling around here, right? The entire Roman force, military force in Jerusalem, consisted of a single cohort, which would have been at most up to a thousand soldiers. And he's just commanded two centurions to prepare roughly half of that entire force to take Paul to Caesarea. This is a serious escort. Right? And again, it underscores the weight uh, that the Roman tribune places on the information from Paul's nephew about the conspiracy against Paul. And so they prepare a force of over 400 soldiers, uh, 70 horses, all who are ready for a fight to transport Paul safely away from Jerusalem. And Lysias prepares a letter to explain the great military procession that is heading toward Felix, the Roman governor in Caesarea. And we do know quite a bit about Felix uh, from several of the well-known historians of antiquity, particularly Tacitus and Josephus uh, and Suetonius and, of course, Luke. Felix was actually born into slavery, this Roman governor, and then later given his freedom either by the mother of Claudius, the Claudius the emperor of Rome, different person than Claudius Lysias the Tribune, okay? Uh, either by the mother of Claudius, according to Tacitus, or uh, by Claudius himself, according to Josephus. And then he was later elevated to the, the position of governor. Felix had three wives. His first wife was the granddaughter of Antony and Cleopatra. And we know that his third life was, wife was Drusilla. She was the daughter of King Herod Agrippa I. So this guy is about as powerfully connected as a human being could get at this point in history. And he was well known for being brutal, a ruthless leader. Anyone who stood against the Romans, Felix had a, had a reputation for just wiping them out. And yet, interestingly enough, Tacitus wrote that Felix, and I'm quoting, exercised the power of a king with the mind of a slave. Felix never really outgrew his roots, okay? He was known, actually, for being fairly inept. In fact, he was removed from office in A.D. 60 for failing to properly deal with a, a dispute between the Jews and Gentiles in Caesarea. And so, here you have Lysias, the Roman tribune, who's trying to get this prisoner transferred unsuccessfully, hopefully without incident. And you can't help but believe that at least some of the overkill with Paul's escort, half of this Roman military force, is because Lysias knows who's waiting at the other end of this transfer. Felix, this very powerful, famously brutal, and yet inept ruler. And I've said many times, uh, ignorance can be taught. And even arrogance can be managed. But if you put those two together in the same person, you've got problems. You've got real problems. Folks who are ignorant, and I'm ignorant of many things, can be taught, right? We can teach ignorance. Arrogance, although not fun, can be managed. But when you have someone who is arrogant and ignorant, you've got a real problem. It can be incredibly difficult to deal with people who are ignorant and arrogant at the same time. I tell people when I had years ago in business that worked for me, I said, you, you can pick one of these two, but you don't get to be both. <laughs> I understand you don't know everything, then don't be arrogant. If you're going to be arrogant, you'd better know everything because you don't get to do both. Right? I'm not going to deal with that. Right? Except the only other ingredient 
that you could possibly add to that mix of arrogance and ignorance to make dealing with someone even more toxic is power. And wouldn't you know it, Felix had all three of those credentials in excess. And so here is Lysias, knowing well just who it is uh, that he's sending Paul to. And he's writing a letter. And it's interesting from our perspective, being able to see the whole picture now, knowing exactly how Lysias handled Paul up to this point, which wasn't always the smoothest, to read this letter because clearly Lysias is taking great care to paint himself in a favorable light to the very powerful, arrogant, and inept Governor Felix. He starts out in verse 26 with Claudius Lysias to His Excellency. The Governor Felix greetings, right? Which was a title usually reserved for kings. And then he reorders the events that what happened with Paul to paint himself in a better light with Felix. And notice especially, and if you were here last week, you remember that Lysias makes no mention of the fact that he had Paul stretched out and chained down to a board ready to flog him before he found out he was a Roman citizen. Lysias wisely kind of leaves all of that out of the letter. And he gathers half of the entire Roman military force in Jerusalem. And he sends Paul off to Caesarea uh, well in hand with this letter. Okay, let's keep reading. Verse 31. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him at night to Antipatris. And on the next day they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. And on reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Okay, so not only does Paul make it safely to Caesarea, but he ends up being housed in Herod's praetorium, which was actually one of Herod's palaces. In fact, it was a magnificent palace that Herod the Great had built for himself originally. And now it was the residence of the governor. And being a Roman citizen... With no formal charges against him, Paul was treated very well, as, as we'll read next week. He was actually given a lot of liberty, a lot of freedoms uh, in his captivity. And his friends were even permitted to come and go uh, to attend to Paul's needs at will. And so if you step back and look at this whole series of events after the fact, you can see that all of uh, the conspiring that was going on against Paul the angry mob that comes after him, the false charges by the Jewish authorities who make a complete disaster out of an impromptu trial, the secret plot to kill him by more than 40 Jews who, who by the way, I'd always secretly hoped starved to death. Yeah. Right? They took a vow not to eat or drink anything until Paul was dead. But it turns out that in rabbinic law, a person under a vow that was impossible to fulfill could be released from that vow without consequence, which seems unfair to me. I mean, if you're going to make a vow, right? I'd have been there like, hey, you can't eat that, you know, but apparently they lived because they couldn't fulfill their vow. But still, Paul escapes, right? The secret plot to kill him. And then he's transported under heaven, uh, heavy guard between a Roman commander who nearly flogged him and one of the most brutal rulers in Paul's day in Caesarea. And Paul ends up, after all of that, living in a palace, with personal freedoms and the ability to see his friends whenever he wants. And of course, he's still in prison, but if you have to go to jail, this is the place you want to be. Can you see how God uses the plans of others all around Paul 
even conspiracies against him, to kill him as necessary pieces to God's own plan to accomplish his purposes in Paul's life, even to the point that he blesses Paul and takes great care of him in the process. Okay? God's plan for your life is bigger than your circumstance. His plan for your life is so much bigger than your circumstance, okay? Your current circumstance, whatever you're going through today, is not the big picture. I know that it can seem like it. It sure feels like it at times. But whatever you're going through at any given moment in your life, that is only one piece to a very big puzzle. And that puzzle that is your life is not defined by just one piece. And for those who love and serve God, for those who follow Jesus Christ, He's taking all of those pieces to the puzzle and creating a masterpiece out of your life. But sometimes we get stuck focusing on just the one piece, you know, trying to figure out how it fits into the rest of life. And we have to remember in those times that God is looking at the whole picture. Right? He sees the completed picture already because he's the one who made the puzzle to begin with. Before you were even born, in fact. And now he's putting it together one piece at a time. And here's the part that we really need to get this morning. Some of those pieces to our puzzle look like promotions at work. And new relationships that encourage and build us up. Big accomplishments. Great days full of wonderful things and all kinds of blessings. And some of those pieces to the very same puzzle look like lost jobs and broken relationships and failures and some really bad days full of heartache and loss. God used a ruthless tyrant, angry mobs of people, Religious terrorists, beatings, false accusations, and imprisonment as pieces to Paul's puzzle. And he also used miraculous healings and adventure and mystery and the most amazing friendships and exotic places and almost unimaginably fulfilling days and months and years in Paul's life where churches were being started and thousands of people were coming to Christ through his ministry. Paul's life was fulfilled beyond his wildest dreams. There was always a bigger picture, a giant puzzle that was Paul's life that was so much bigger than what was happening on any given day or in any given situation. And by the way, those difficult pieces to the puzzle, those aren't there simply to make the final picture look more interesting. Those difficult pieces are what God uses to shape us and mature us and season us and prepare us for greater days ahead. And Paul understood that. In Romans 5, 3 through 5, he wrote, We rejoice in our sufferings. Now that's a peculiar thing to say. Who rejoices in their sufferings, right? But he goes on, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Okay? Now, with that in mind, Put your own struggles into that perspective for a moment, into that context, and rejoice. 
because of what God is accomplishing in you. In the tough times, yes, even when life is difficult, He's working in you in profound ways, even if it doesn't feel like it, and even if you don't realize it. So, what piece of your puzzle is He working on right now? Maybe it's something wonderful, I hope so. And maybe it's not. Maybe there are physical challenges that you're facing. Maybe you're in a relationship that is in turmoil right now. Maybe your family is a mess. Maybe you're overwhelmed by financial pressures. Look, it's important for you to understand that right now, God is holding your entire life, every single piece of that puzzle in His hands. Not just the happy pieces. So, so right where you are, right in the middle of that really difficult circumstance, he's in the process of fitting that piece in between other pieces to tell a much larger story. And so we should never assume that every bad day and every bad encounter and every struggle is going to somehow ruin or negate what our lives could have been. Because actually so often those hard times are necessary. They're a necessary part to becoming the man or woman that he's created us to be. And so he not only uses the good days, he uses the bad days. Right? He not only uses positive experiences, he uses the negative ones too. To make us who he wants us to be. God uses the unbelievers in your life. He uses the people that don't like you. He uses your mistakes and your failures to connect the other pieces because He's creating something so much bigger. And so, without question, there are circumstances in this life that will conspire against us, yes. But God has a plan, a great conspiracy of His own. And in fact, it devours all the plans that the enemy brings against us. And so just remember, when the bad days come, those hard times, that He is simply completing your puzzle, which is a one-of-a-kind masterpiece, by the way. Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16, describes it so beautifully. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. Now listen to this part. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. That's incredible. Every single day that you're alive has been ordained by God. Think about that. In fact, every single day of your life was ordained by God before you even existed. Do you understand that? Do you, do you know what that means? If the God that created the universe... And everything that's in it was thinking about you before you even existed. That means there's a plan for your life. 
for every single day of your life. And it's a really important plan. And all that you have to do to begin realizing his plan for your life is to follow him. And for those of us who are following him, we have to keep our minds set on the things of God instead of the things of man. And when you do that, you'll begin to see the bigger picture as God is putting it together. You'll begin to understand how today's piece of that picture, that puzzle, fits in with all the other pieces that together make something that is one of a kind. Something that is truly beautiful. Let's pray.